Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves and baseball talk, straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. As always, I am Grant McCauley, and as we know, the winter meetings are in full force out in San Diego this week. And boy, do we have a show for you with so much stuff packed in from a Hall of Fame announcement, a former Atlanta Brave making it, another falling just short, and we have free agency going absolutely crazy as the winter meetings are in person for the first time in three years. Big signings, including in the National League East, where we've seen a couple of the Braves' rivals get a little bit better. We saw one of the best pitchers in the division move over to the American League, and we just have so many more questions about what the Braves are going to do over the course of this hot stove season into the winter, and particularly at shortstop as we march toward 2023 and spring training, which grows closer by the day. As always, I want to remind you to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Please share it with a friend. Leave a rating if you'd be so kind. We'd appreciate that. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. You can follow Corey McCartney on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney. Find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. You can also like us over on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond over there. Same thing for Instagram. You can find me at Grant McCauley and at From the Diamond is where you can find the show. Now, with all that out of the way, we have got way too much to get into here. So, Corey, we have talked about it for weeks and weeks now. The postseason has been done. The World Series has been over. The hot stove has been lit. But I think it is safe to say that since the winter meetings are back and in person in San Diego, that not only is the hot stove lit, I mean, things are on absolute fire out there in San Diego. With all of these crazy signings and all of these moves, this truly is a time for baseball fans to get really, really excited. I mean, it's like you can't hit refresh on Twitter without something breaking. And, uh, yeah. and that's, I mean, it's its fantastic, right? It's, it's not that NBA, NFL player movement, but it's, it's, close. Man, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And it's the years of these deals, the money involved yep. in these deals. I mean, it's coming full force and it's coming fast. Well, I don't think there's any other place we can lead off other than the biggest news on a Wednesday. And that, of course, is that Aaron Judge is going to remain a New York Yankee. He is not going to trade in his pinstripes. He is not going back out to the West Coast. He is going to stay in the only place that he has called home in the big leagues. Nine years, Corey, $360 million. We knew it was going to take a just, I don't know, record-breaking or at least bank-breaking contract to get Aaron Judge wherever he was going to go or to stay in the Bronx. But the Yankees stepped up to the plate and hit a big-time home run to keep their big-time home run hitter at home. Unbelievable when you think about what he rejected during the season, seven years at $213.5 million, and what he gets here, $40 million uh, average annual value, the record for position player. I mean, this was the greatest bet-on-yourself season uh, in baseball history. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, the, the, the amount of money that we're talking about here for Aaron Judge. And, I, and if you think about it from the Yankees' perspective, what was the next move? If Aaron Judge would have right. went somewhere else, how were they going to react to that? How were they – 
potentially going to fill you know that massive hole in their in their lineup. There was no other move for the Yankees. They ponied up, and and you really have to think that the Giants and as we learned the Padres, the mystery third team that came out of nowhere in this. I don't know that this deal gets to this level if we're not talking about those other teams being involved because you know otherwise you know I think we're talking about something much smaller and Judge Stain put anyway but man I just cannot believe we're talking about 40 million on average for Aaron Judge yeah it's absolutely wild and you talk about the bet on yourself free agency season or that season going into free agency Aaron Judge had one for all time I mean good luck one-upping this one if you're out there trying to cash in at the height of everything that you could possibly do the height of your powers if you will you mentioned that contract that he turned down with the Yankees during the season. Uh, that was what seven years. You said two hundred thirteen million dollars, so a thirty yeah, yep. million, almost thirty-one million dollar a year average annual value. Well, he gets two more years, and by my simple math, one hundred and forty-six and a half million more dollars for betting on himself. I would say he cashed in in a big time way. We also know, speaking of the cash man, that Brian Cashman is going to be sticking around in the Bronx for a while. He just got a new extension. I don't know if this is serendipitous timing that, hey, Brian Cashman's going to be sticking around and then the Aaron Judge deal gets done, but it certainly doesn't hurt if you're going to be sticking around in that uh, environment if you're Brian Cashman with the questions and the expectations of that fan base that, hey, if you're going to be back, you better be making moves to make this club better, and I don't know if a move gets much bigger than Aaron Judge. Think about it. This is the only the third player in history to get forty million on average more. And the only other two guys are in the same also in New York and yeah. in the same rotation. And Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. But I think about from from the Cashman standpoint. If again, if you weren't going to get this deal done, I just don't know how you can go into the season with that offense that they had. Obviously, Anthony Rizzo's back, but they just have so many questions already with Aaron Judge and trying to catch up to the Astros in the pecking order of the American League. I mean, how much more difficult would that have been had he gone mm-hmm. somewhere else? There was yep. just there was legitimately no other move that the Yankees could make this offseason than to do whatever it took to keep Aaron Judge put. Yeah, it's hard to replace a 40-homer hitter. It's harder to replace a 50-homer hitter. It'd be, I would say, almost impossible to replace a 60-homer hitter even if the expectation is not for Aaron Judge to hit 60 year after year after year, we've now seen that he can and that he clearly is the big cog in the Yankees machine right now. And yeah, if you were to take that out, I don't even know what moves you go out there and make. You might have to get creative with some kind of trade. Clearly, Carlos Correa is out there, but you know, all due respect to him, and we'll talk about shortstops later on, but you know, he doesn't have the offensive resume that an Aaron Judge has. So your lineup would have some serious questions, even if you got better at shortstop. But uh, putting all that to the side, Aaron Judge staying in New York means things to other teams as well. The San Francisco Giants were linked to Judge for a big-time offer of over $300 million. Another team out in California was also linked to Aaron Judge, That the, the city that's hosting the winter meetings right now, the San Diego Padres. And, Corey, like I said, we'll talk about shortstops a little bit later. They had a pursuit of Trey Turner going on and a pursuit of Aaron Judge. Maybe they pivoted to that after not landing Turner, who we all know at this point it's going to be a Philadelphia Philly for a long time. But this is fascinating, and this to me is the essence of what the winter meetings is all about. I just can't make any sense of this. And I know that there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes along with the Padres. And that's just, you know, I mean, that's just what you talk about when you talk about, you know, who's in the GM share there. But they've already got uh, this contract for Manny Machado that's a massive deal. You've got the, the you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. contract. Yep. And then you were, and you've got Juan Soto yep. who's going to have to get paid at one point, at some point too. So are you basically saying there's no way in the world we're going to keep Juan Soto? We're just going to enjoy the ride that we have with him. And let's just go out and try to get the best piece that we can at this 
this point in time, whether that's Judge, whether that's Trey Turner. It's it's I mean it's it's crazy it's it's just crazy stuff when we're talking about the Padres of all teams because I just don't understand what this means for their future, especially, you know, when you talk about Soto, but man, they are being so aggressive. And if you're a Padres fan, you got to love it, but it's yep. kind of confounding stuff uh, from trying to figure out the bottom line on how that team operates. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see what the Padres continue to do because they're nothing, if not creative. The Juan Soto trade showed us that they do have Fernando Tatis due back at some point. That's a huge question mark for them at this time, but given his age and his abilities, I would expect that he'll be part of the equation there sooner than later, and you know they'll probably be the better for it. But going out trying to get Trey Turner, going out trying to get Aaron Judge, the Padres are not resting on their laurels. They are going out there and swimming in the deep waters. Now, there's a lot of other stuff going on at the winter meetings as well, and of course, we got some pretty big news from out in Texas, and I would say perhaps a seismic shift we felt in the NL East, but there were more moves to come. But the big move, of course, was Jacob deGrom signing with the Texas Rangers. Five years, $188 million. It could be a sixth year to bump it up to over $220 million. You and I know, we've talked about it. You know how I feel about Jacob deGrom, how most people do. When healthy, this is the best pitcher on the planet. The Rangers definitely needed to make a pitching statement, kind of like they made a big statement in the free agent market a year ago with the signings of Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. This just shows you the Rangers and their shiny new ballpark are looking to host postseason games of their own rather than neutral site postseason games for other clubs. And DeGrom is a heck of a way to make a huge statement and an impact on a rotation that needed to have a serious upgrade. This was just, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. I think when you get Bruce Bochy and you wonder what's the next step in this team getting back to relevancy, and you also have, you know, a year removed from getting Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, I think this was the next evolution for them. I do that. I don't know if you found the timing of it weird though, right? It, it's kind of almost like a news drop on a Friday night ahead of the yeah. winter meetings. I don't know. I don't want to get caught up in that and almost like backing out of New York or not having to go out and necessarily face the tough questions after coming to this deal and having to do it in front of everybody at winter meetings, like you owe it to the baseball world to do that. But just caught the thought, I thought that was maybe a little bit odd, but I, from the Rangers standpoint, I mean, this was a team that needed to get themselves to the point where you felt like, all right, something's happening in a really tough division. They're going to make a move. They're, they're ready to play. And this, I mean, I don't know what, how much bigger of a move you really could make than going out and getting one of the definitive uh, pitchers the last 20 years. I don't think that you could. I mean, we're going to talk about one of the other definitive best pitchers of this generation because that is the man who had to go up to New York and kind of fill the void left by Jacob deGrom and his departure. Of course, I'm talking about Justin Verlander, and I want to get to that in just a moment, but when we talk about the Rangers, I mean, you might remember back to, as you and I have talked about them on From the Diamond on 92.9 The Game throughout the course of the season, just kind of feeling like this is a spot where you knew they were going to spend money I thought they may be more in like the Verlander Derby because he's already in the Lone Star State. He's had success with Houston. Maybe he'd just move on over to Arlington and get things going there. But, you know, you knew when DeGrom opted out of his deal, he wasn't looking to go sign somewhere else for the exact same money. You also heard Steve Cohen say, if Jacob DeGrom leaves, it's not going to be for a lack of funds and a lack of trying on our part. But it just seems like the Rangers came in with the five guaranteed years, willing to go to a sixth year as well in this deal if everything is, you know, sees it all the way through at over $220 million. There are not a lot of teams that can afford to pay that to a 
going into his mid-30s pitcher, even one as good as DeGrom, because there are some questions about his health, of course. But the Rangers, this is the kind of move I feel like they had to make in order to make themselves better and, I think, make Texas another destination for not just the DeGroms of the world, the Corey Seegers of the world, the Marcus Simeons of the world, but even more starting pitchers that want to come out and play in that new ballpark and bring the Rangers back to a club that can get into October and stay there. Yeah, you mentioned, so the, there is obviously, I mean, despite the fact that this is Jacob DeGrom that we're talking about, a guy who has multiple Cy Youngs on his ledger, I mean, there, there's an inherent gamble with a guy who hasn't pitched more than 92 innings since 2019. I mean, that's just part of the deal with him that, you know, I mean, he's, when you start looking at him and Verlander, and Verlander has almost two years uh, of his career taken away from Tommy John surgery and the recovery, since 2019, DeGrom's pitched like 28 and a third more innings than Verlander has, despite all that missed time. So, I mean, there, there's a gamble that comes with going this route and getting DeGrom, but it's the signal that you're sending to not only your team, but your fan base. And as you mentioned, this being a destination, because what happens after this? You know, you go out and get Andrew Haney, another guy out there in the market. Yeah. You know, you've already got, you know, uh, uh, Martin Perez that you've already, you know, brought back. And obviously they have some young arms that I know that they're excited about there within the system. But, you know, this was like, you know, as much as putting all the money they put into Seeger and Simeon a year ago was a signal that, okay, they're coming back. This is mm-hmm. like, we're ready to win and we're ready to win now. Yeah, and we've seen clubs go out and have the crazy free agent spending spree. Then things don't work for a year or two. They really don't sign anybody else. And the next thing you know, those big acquisitions, you know, kind of like when Texas got Alex Rodriguez at one point, they end up getting traded away to somewhere else. And I'm not saying this is the same, you know, exact situation. Obviously, it's not. And clearly, they haven't traded anybody away. Instead, they're doing exactly what I think they needed to do, and that's follow up that investment, that initial investment by getting their new double play duo for half a billion dollars by going out and getting one of the best pitchers in all of baseball to front a rotation and give some legitimacy to a club that not only has to compete in the you know the American League West just by and large but they got to compete with the Houston Astros for the best team in the Lone Star State I don't know that that necessarily has bragging rights that have national relevance to everybody but you know that that can't be something that's completely lost on the Texas Rangers when they're making moves like this. So uh, a big move for the Rangers. You mentioned that Andrew Heaney also signed with this club. So they get two years of him. It's uh, one of those deals that has some opt-outs and other things. And there was interest in Heaney, who had a real bounce-back year with the Los Angeles Dodgers, but still you know, has kind of some of the same questions. Will he be able to give the Rangers 140, 150 innings, be in their rotation every fifth day the way that they need him to, if these gambles work out and – They're different kinds of gambles for different lengths of time and for different amounts of money, but the Rangers have gone out and gotten two of the best pitching acquisitions that you can uh, and made their club that much better. So I look at their starters right now, and you've got DeGrom, you've got Perez, John Gray, uh, Andrew Haney, and Jake Odorizzi, and Dane Dunning there too. So you could kind of go Odorizzi or Dunning at that number five. Yeah. All of a sudden, this was this would look this was not a strength for this team no, a year ago. No. You know, they they were going to have to slug their way to wins. It just they got some you know some strong stuff out of Perez uh, you know at times last year and in an All Star year for him. Uh, but all of a sudden, their starting pitching is so much more improved in a division where, you know, how, how what's the easiest path to get back to contention in the American League West? I think you, you can't outslug everybody. I mean, you think you've got the Astros, the Mariners, you know, the, the Angels. I mean, 
you're going to need to win with starting pitching, I think, yeah. in that division. And this is going to go a long way uh, towards them bridging that gap with these guys now in tow. Yeah, you've got to at least set the foundation with your rotation because then that, as we know, gives your bullpen the opportunity to be set up for success as well. And Texas is looking to really build a pitching staff that can you know, allow them to become an annual contender. You don't sign Jacob DeGrom to go overnight, get better for a year or two, and just hope things work out. This is a long-term investment. Corey Seager was the ultimate long-term investment. You signed him for the next decade. Marcus Simeon, not too much less than that. So these are the kind of moves you make as you want to uh, maybe accelerate out of any kind of rebuild or really kind of the purgatory or wandering in the desert, whatever you want to call it, that the Rangers seem to be doing in that division. This is a chance to get back to relevancy. And it was interesting. There are still rumors out there that they have still, since signing Jacob deGrom and adding uh, Andrew Haney, they have gone out and talked to Carlos Rodon about maybe possibly donning that Rangers uniform. I don't know if that'll happen. If they pull wow. off that trifecta, that would be yeah. one heck of an awesome. How's that going to work? Rebuilding your rotation and having the other depth. But <laughs> it's just this is the time of year where the rumors are out there, and we might as well talk about them. Now, the Jacob deGrom size hole that was left in the Mets rotation, it's going to be filled by another guy that should have Cooperstown calling, somebody we've talked about a lot on the show who plans to try to pitch and make a run at 300 wins and – maybe he'll get there, I don't know, but he's got a two-year deal, does Justin Verlander, to join the New York Mets. He reunites him with Max Scherzer, $43 million per season uh, for the next two years for Verlander, who joins his old Tigers running mate. I tweeted this out. You may have seen this, Corey, but the last time these two guys pitched together was 2014 with the Tigers. They combined to make $35 million. Now they're each making 43 per and Scherzer's getting another 15 Man. on top of that in deferred payments from the Washington Nationals. So what I'm saying is this. There's an awful lot of money being spent on Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. And once again, for the Mets, money wasn't going to be the thing that was going to keep them from going out and, and staying where they need to. If they lose Jacob deGrom, you knew that Steve Cohen and company were going to have something up their sleeve. And it was, in fact, luring Justin Verlander away from the Houston Astros. Yeah, so look, I mean, you got him under contract now through his age 42 season with that option at 35 million. How much are you investing? Are they going to are these guys really going to be able to be out there to get to log the innings that they need to contend for a National League East title this year? I mean, that's, that's a, good question. a year ago and we were having these same, you know, we 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 said we set the course for the beginning of the season. And we said, man, you have, you know, DeGrom and Scherzer, you put those two together, man, that's going to be awfully tough to top, top, uh, top that uh, rotation. And how often do we actually see it? Now, Verlander is a completely different animal than DeGrom. He's, he's, you know, had a fantastic year, you know, one another Cy Young, yep. but Scherzer obviously had his injury issues. And mm-hmm. now I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like they're, the names are great. But are they going to be able to get anything north of 180 innings out of these two guys in 2023? Uh, I, I sort—I want to say—I yeah. don't want to say I'll believe it when I see it. But at least on the Scherzer side, I, I mean, Verlander, that guy's just—you know—he's an absolute beast. But I just think you're putting a lot in guys that are on the wrong end of their career. Yeah, you are. But then again, I mean, these are guys that can come in and make you demonstratively better. And if you look at yes. what Justin Verlander did coming off Tommy Johnny through 175 innings and was available in the playoffs to take the ball for the Astros. I know he had some good ones, some bad ones, and that may be part of the deal too. But 
you know, I would much rather have a rotation that has Justin Verlander in it if I have the opportunity to have him than to say, you know what? No, I just don't think I need him because he may not pitch well in October. When and get to October and figure it out when you get there. And Justin Verlander is not a bad name to have in your Rolodex when you're naming your starting rotation for a postseason series. I think he could find a way to win a game. And in fact, he did. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he didn't keep the Astros from winning the World Series last year. But be that as it may, the New York Mets want to take that big step forward. So they cannot afford to watch Jacob deGrom leave and not do something, make an impact move to be able to have an answer for that. And that's exactly what they did with Verlander. And that was not all that's going on in the National League East. We saw Trey Turner, the first big shortstop domino, Corey, has fallen. And what a deal it is. 11 years, $300 million for Trey Turner with the Philadelphia Phillies. This is a contract that's going to take him to the age of 40 with a full no trade. I'm not surprised, Corey, by the average annual value approaching $30 million. But I am very surprised about the 11 years part. The Phillies haven't said they're going to spend stupid money in a while, but man, they are definitely going to spend some kind of money. And I guess we'll find out together exactly how smart or not smart it may be, but they got their guy. They weren't going to be shut out and getting one of these big shortstops and they got one of the best. So on the flip side of Verlander, which my only, my only real issue with the, with the Verlander deal is it's not a long-term solution for the Mets rotation. This is a generational solution and i mean generational in terms of your kids are going to be old by the time uh, you could pretty much go from first grade to graduating (laughs) high school over the terms of this trey turner deal i mean he's going to be 41 years old when he's an unrestricted free agent who who's going to be paying trey turner 27.2 million dollars when he's 40 years old what's game gonna look like what's good okay do you think he's gonna be playing for the phillies when he's 40 years 40 years old i'd be surprised but wherever he's playing the phillies are going to be paying for it i guess is my point yeah yeah i mean i don't know what the speed's gonna look like then all that but i will say you wanted to make a splash you're not going to have uh bryce harper for a portion of the 2023 season in his return from injury you got one of the best in the game. You got a guy who brings absolute speed, who's going to bring something big time to the front end of that lineup. I mean, you said it, they didn't want to get denied. And uh, I don't know that they could have made a much bigger splash than this, but the fact that they've now got a deal that has Bryce Harper for the length that they have. Mm-hmm. And now this one, I mm-hmm. mean, I just can't believe the length of contract the Phillies are giving guys. Well, I mean, these are obviously players that they coveted, that they have seen quite a bit. Both of them were starring for the Washington Nationals before ending up in Philadelphia. But one of the crazy stories that came out about Trey Turner was that the Padres were prepared to offer him or did offer him $340 plus million. Well, the Padres drafted him and traded him to the Nationals to begin with. So they might could have saved themselves a lot of trouble if they just had him in the house for all these years and maybe been looking to re-sign him rather than trying to lure him back as a free agent. But be that as it may, the Phillies were not done spending money. They also signed Taiwan Walker, the starting pitcher who was most recently with the Mets. Veteran right-hander gets four years, $72 million, according to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. Uh, Multiple reports out there about this deal being done uh, as of Tuesday night. So the Phillies continue to spend. The National League East continues to be where headlines are made as far as player moves are concerned. And We know that the Braves haven't really waded out into those waters yet to figure out what's going to happen at shortstop, perhaps, or some other big move that you have to imagine is coming at some point. Now, uh, other deals and and big rumors that have been happening as the winter meetings continue out in San Diego, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletics saying that the Giants had two men on their outfield wish list, and they got one of them, and that's Mitch Hanniger. A three-year deal for him at just under $45 million, Corey, 
You and I talked about him as a possibility for a lot of different teams. You knew there were going to be probably half a dozen, if not more, very interested clubs in bringing him in. I had kind of thought maybe one year make good kind of deal made sense for somebody with as much of an injury history as Hanniger. But the San Francisco Giants, they waited right in. They kind of got creative with his contract. But Hanniger has a chance to make himself a good little chunk of money for the next three years as he joins a Giants club that seems to be very focused on adding and getting back into October. Yeah, if you're San Francisco, you're obviously hoping in the end that you can get those 39 uh, home runs and 100 RBIs that he had in the 2021 season. Obviously, he's been you know hit by injuries in 17, 19, 20, 2022. They're they're getting aggressive, and, and clearly, you know, this is the team that waited to spend. You know, uh, Farhan Zaidi's been you know building something there, and you know, a year removed from not being in the playoffs. I mean, they are very much uh, working to get back there. And I really like this. I'm a, I'm a Mitch Hanniger fan. I think he would have made sense for a lot of clubs, maybe even the Braves, again, as you mentioned, on one of those make good deals. But I don't know a lot of teams will, that were going to be in position to give them three years and $45.3 million. Yeah, I don't think a lot of clubs were willing to go the three years. And that will be something that in, the opt-out is there for Hanniger, I believe, after year two, if he wants to test the market again. The Braves on a one-year deal, I, I think that Hanniger would have made a ton of sense. And, you know, we talked about Alex Anthopoulos perhaps doing that big AAV to bring a guy in, entice him to join the Braves, and then kind of see what happens after that. Hanniger would have uh, definitely fit that bill, but all of his bills will be forwarded out to San Francisco. They're going to be paid by the Giants for up to the next three years. Not the only outfielder signing today. Another big one, this guy leaving California. We kind of felt like this was a foregone conclusion when Cody Bellinger did not receive a contract from the Dodgers. He got non-tendered. And, of course, that paved the way for him to hit the free agent market and see if there was a club that wanted to take a gamble on a very talented player, former MVP, but a guy that the last couple of years, to say struggled, would be putting it lightly the Chicago Cubs, though, felt like at one year and about $17 million that that was a price that they would be happy to pay to see if they can catch lightning in a bottle with Bellinger, who, of course, is still on the right side of 30. So a 648 OPS from 2020 to 2022, that's 299th out of 338 qualified hitters Ugh. during that stretch. So he has been very bad, uh, the, yeah. the former uh, National League Most Valuable Player after the 2019 season. But um, obviously, you know, he's still, as you mentioned, he's still young. You know, I think there's there's enough in that bat to believe that you can turn it around. I mean, hit 165 in 2021 last year. He hit 210 with 19 homers. Uh, you know, this is still a guy that you see the age and you think you can tie back into that. And obviously, you know, he's got the resume and we'll see if the Cubs can be the ones that turn things around for Cody Bellinger. Yeah. And you look at that most valuable player in 2019. I mean, this is a guy that had a 630 slugging percentage since then, 376. And that's not to mention the batting averages, as you just pointed out, the on-base percentages. Everything is plummeted and he has looked at times absolutely lost at the plate. But the Cubs, for the 27-year-old Bellinger, are going to give him $17.5 million as a bounce back contract. I mean, this had to be tempting for a number of other clubs, but I don't know how many teams were willing to go to this level in terms of this. And there are no bad one-year deals, I don't think. But you have to kind of wonder with this one, was there another club that was willing to risk it on Bellinger considering that this is not just coming off one bad year? Yeah, I mean, but you think about a guy who's not been the same player since the 2020 playoffs. I mean, he had a miserable 2021, slightly improved in 2020. The numbers were still below his career norms, but I think you mentioned it. There's not a bad one-year deal. And when you're a team that, you know, like the Cubs, where you're trying to, to almost on the fly, you know, create a, a scenario where you're having a little bit quicker turnaround. I mean, this is a, a team that needs to find some sort of lightning in a bottle. Maybe you, you know, reignite 
uh, who Cody Bellinger is as a player, and maybe two, three years from now, you're talking about you know a guy who's been completely reborn in Wrigley. Yeah, we'll find out. It's certainly a nice place to hit. They don't call it the friendly confines for nothing. Can Cody Bellinger get himself back on track? Now, one of the things that we're seeing, one of the many things with the winter meetings, and this one's something entirely new, it's not free agents signing everywhere. It's not going to be the Rule 5 draft. It's not Hall of Fame announcements, but it's a draft lottery. And Major League Baseball held their first draft lottery on Tuesday out in San Diego. And as you know, these are going to be stacked so that the clubs with the lower records have the higher probabilities of getting the top picks. And it certainly played out that way. The Pittsburgh Pirates got that number one pick. Then you have the Washington Nationals, Detroit Tigers. The Texas Rangers came in with a fourth pick. Pretty nice when you're out there signing big free agents as well to have a nice top-round draft pick come with you. Uh, Minnesota Twins, Oakland A's, Cincinnati Reds, Kansas City Royals, Colorado Rockies, and Miami Marlins round out the top ten. If you're curious, the Braves got the 25th pick in the draft, which is about where they would have landed if you just did the old traditional flip the records the other way. What do you think of this draft lottery? I know a lot of people have really been talking about uh, how valuable this could be in terms of giving a little intrigue, a little excitement to the draft, and maybe how necessary it was considering how some of the old systems of baseball, whether it's the the draft, the draft compensation that goes with different things, and the draft spending, which, of course, is uh, is subject to those player pools. going to be interesting to see exactly how all of this plays out. I think it goes without saying though, that you're never going to have quite the intrigue or quite the anticipation around a draft lottery for baseball, just because unlike the NFL and unlike the NBA, you don't know who the number one pick's going to be, have no question whether or not that guy's going to be able to come in and immediately make an impact on a club. I just think from that end, it's never going to have quite the same level of anticipation or excitement around it. But I will say, so you had the Nationals, A's, and Pirates all had 16.5% chance at the number one pick. That was the best odds of anybody. I feel like the A's just can't win at anything. They ended up getting the sixth pick while the Pirates and and Nationals end up one and two. So you got to feel for Oakland. Things just keep uh, coming up on the wrong side of, uh, of the the ledger for them. But um, I'm interested by it. You know, I'll, we'll see in a couple of years, you know, if anything kind of builds around this, I just don't know how this is ultimately going to be seen outside of baseball circles. I don't think you're going to have watch parties and people getting pumped about a draft lottery when they have no clue who is potentially going to be going number one. Yeah. And if you are curious about this good write up over on MLB trade rumors as there is for everything just about this time of year, but you mentioned the three teams of the worst records all had the same odds of getting that top pick. And well, of course the Oakland athletics somehow managed to not get one of the top three, Uh, Go figure. But the 18 non-playoff clubs were all in the running for any of those top six picks, but the odds for the clubs with the better records, it diminished as it went down. Then you had the 12 playoff Hmm. teams that were ordered on their postseason finishes with team revenue sharing status separating the teams that were eliminated in the same round. That, of course, from uh, MLBTradeRumors.com. And we're going to be learning a lot of new things about how the draft works, but it's kind of exciting. And I know this is something that from the collective bargaining side that the Players Union was really pushing to de-incentivize clubs that were simply losing games to net the number one overall draft pick and just have it in their back pocket. This creates a little bit of variance and does not make this money in the bank for the club that loses the most games (laughs) and maybe doesn't even try in the case of a couple of clubs. And that's a harp on the A's, but just think about that. You drop 102 games, you have, you know, you're tied for the first, you know, the, the number one odds at getting that pick and you end up sixth. I mean, it's it it. I think on the, the flip side of it, it it, it kind of takes away 
you know, some of that, you know, that tankathon that we've seen some of these teams, you know, live within over these past few years. And, you know, hopefully this, this dissuades them from doing that. I thought it was interesting. The twins, you know, ended up having the 13th best odds and they end up with the top five picks. So I guess that's the other side of it is, you know, you can be marginal and end up getting, you know, lifted up a little bit in this process. But, um, you know, hopefully this does uh, keep teams like the A's, uh, you know, from going out there and, and trying to just pack it all in uh, to, to pack up and I need to uh, compile those draft picks. Yeah. Well, nothing about our process here on From the Diamond is marginal. I can assure you of that. We've got all kinds of good <laughs> stuff go. happening in this. Corey, I appreciate your time as always. I've got Jay Jaffe and Justin Toscano joining me from the winter meetings. I'm going to talk to Jay about the Hall of Fame, Fred McGriff's election, Dale Murphy falling short, and uh, what some of the changes in the committees and obviously a, a very different looking uh, baseball writer's ballot could mean going forward. I'll get to Jay in just a moment. But Corey, as always, I appreciate your time. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. You got it, man. I feel like I'm like the world's worst leadoff hitter with those guys coming after me, but, uh, you know, always fun to lead off. I think we're all a good team here. We've got four horsemen, and we're going to make it happen. So looking forward to it, and thanks as always. Well, let's shift gears here and talk about the Hall of Fame. And to help me do that, I want to welcome my guest at this time. He is Jay Jaffe, senior writer over at Fangraphs, and, of course, the author of the Cooperstown Casebook. You can check him out on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. And Jay, I think it's always a fun part of the winter meetings when we get to talk about the Hall of Fame growing, and they did in fact grow by one as Fred McGriff made it in on the contemporary baseball era's ballot. And this is something I think is long awaited for a lot of us, especially down here in Braves country. And it was an interesting ballot that had a couple of different Braves on it. But for Fred McGriff to be voted in and unanimously at that, it seems like there were some messages perhaps that were sent with this ballot and of course with the results as well. Yeah, this, you know, when the committee announced the ballot a few weeks ago, and then when the panel was named, this seemed like by far the most likely outcome. McGriff, despite the 493 career home runs and the, and the other accolades that he accumulated, McGriff did not make a huge dent on the writer's ballot when he was under consideration for 10 years from 2010 to 2019. He topped out just under 40%, but for most of that run, in fact, for every year besides the last year, he was below 25%, yeah. as low as 11.7%. And I think, you know, that really reflects uh, the uh, increasing use of advanced statistics in evaluating Hall of Fame cases. And McGriff, as a hitter, very good hitter, um, but the sort of relative one-dimensionality of his game, the lack of impressive defense or base running, did not paint as flattering a picture as it did of, say, Jeff Bagwell, yeah. you know, who comes off as a better hitter once you adjust for ballpark and had a lot of great peripherals to go with it. Um, and it was an incredibly crowded ballot, the most crowded we've seen of the modern era mm-hmm. uh, of voting, which goes back to 1966 when the writers returned to voting annually. So he already had a, a bit of a rough sledding there. And I think there was a sense that his credentials would play better in front of a small committee where half of them are Hall of Famers and they're looking more at the big counting stats. Yeah. Um, particularly when we saw what happened with Harold Baines a couple of years ago, 2019, today's game ballot, a very sympathetic panel, mm-hmm. you know, more or less gave him the benefit of the doubt and falling short of 3,000 hits because he was around during the 1981 and 1994 player strikes. Uh, and McGriff missed time due to the 94 strike. Yep. And the assumption was that he would have gotten to 500 home runs, uh, which more or less guaranteed entry to players who were not connected to performance-enhancing drugs. And that described McGriff. 
As we talk about Fred McGriff, his 493 home runs, just the steady slugger for so long, who seemed to have a stronger Cooperstown case than perhaps he got credit for at times. Maybe not the analytical darling, but when you look at a slugger who did it so well for so long, I don't think it's a surprise that Fred McGriff's a Hall of Famer, but is it any surprise to you that it was unanimous on the 16-person panel? Yeah, I'm a little surprised it's unanimous, mostly because it's rare that we see unanimity here. Yeah. Um, You know, I can think of uh, the three managers, Larusa, Cox, and Torrey were all unanimous. Mm -hmm. Um, I think somebody said Lee Smith was, but I'm not totally sure. Uh, with regards to what came before with the Veterans Committee, they never released yeah. totals. So, you know, I, th- I think it was a, an appropriate testament to just how much respect he has uh, within the game and, and all that. But good for him. It was nice to see him at the press conference and just how excited he was and how yeah. grateful he was. He made a good joke about the Tom Amansky hat uh, as he put on the Hall, <laughs> the Hall of Fame hat. And uh, uh, I thought that was neat. Yeah, if it doesn't end up on his Hall of Fame plaque, there will be people out there who might be actually disappointed <laughs> that it's not the baseball world's Tommy Mansky had. But be that as it may, I mean, Fred McGriff was a guy who just a most consistent slugger for a bunch of different teams, and every club he went to, he seemed to make them better throughout at least the prime of his career. A great example was the Atlanta Braves as he came over and gave him a legitimate middle-of-the-order slugger that helped him win the World Series in 1995. Now, Braves baseball had two, I think, very different uh, time periods that were uh, both represented on this ballot because you had Fred McGriff of the Braves of the 90s, but you also had Dale Murphy of the Braves of the 80s. I loved your write-up on Dale Murphy and the case that he has uh, for the Hall of Fame. And I I feel like, and this may just be from a TBS kid that grew up watching the Braves, and, and Dale Murphy was pretty much all we had, and it was an awful lot, and it was pretty good back in those days. I just feel like the Hall of Fame would just kind of be a better place. But as you sized up Murphy's case, it seems to kind of go beyond the numbers when we talk about the kind of person that would be up for election to the Hall of Fame. It's just a shame that he didn't get in on this particular ballot. Yeah, you know, I've always been a bit lukewarm on Murphy's case in terms of the stats. He had a very nice run there, you know, in the 80s. I think it's 81 to 87 is his best. He won two MVP awards, was almost a perennial all-star. I think won a couple gold gloves in there. But his knees gave way pretty early in his career. He fell short, two homers short of 400. He basically left the Rockies in midseason when he said, if I can't hit home runs here, I'm done. Yeah. And decided to hang him up. And, you know, like McGriff, he never really made much of a dent on the ballot during a time when voters were mostly focused on career totals. Um, and he was on two previous era committee ballots. and Didn't make much of a dent there either. Was finished in the, you know, yeah. below the... Uh, actual count threshold to be reported. I would call it the dignity cloak, um, you know, because they don't want to tell you that somebody got shut out. Right. Um, but it seemed very much as though this ballot was assembled as kind of a purpose pitch at the PED linked guys who are falling off the writer's ballot. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, Rafael Palmero were three of the candidates on there. It seemed like the hall wanted to emphasize character on this ballot. You know, I have to admit, based on my analysis, I would like to have seen Lou Whitaker and Dwight Evans have been on that ballot because they finished higher than Murphy and Don Mattingly uh, in the 2020 modern baseball balloting. Uh, And I thought on the merits, there's a lot to be said for them. They fare better in my advanced statistic uh, analysis. Jaws seem to have a bit of momentum there, but the ballot seemed assembled to make a certain point, which I don't want to detract from Murphy or whatever. But when I wrote about Murphy, I expanded what I'd written about him uh, over the years. And really, uh, it just he comes off as, uh, as a mensch, as my people would say, beyond just being a guy who stayed out of trouble. In recent years, he's really stood up for causes that I think are admirable. And I think go beyond 
our expectations of the average athlete pre and post career, especially, you know, look, Murphy's a guy who is a converted Mormon. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Salt Lake City, so I'm well acquainted with the proclivities and the politics of the Mormon church. Um, you know, he's, I think, playing to a, uh, played in front of a very Southern conservative fan base is, is, I think, how I would characterize it. He went out on a limb and, so, you know, his support of Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, his, one of his sons was injured in the 2020 George Floyd demonstrations. And I think he took some heat from people who otherwise would be in his camp. And that, that speaks to me as just a high character individual. And it was really refreshing to reevaluate his case. And like I said, you know, like I'm not a big proponent of the character clause uh, that's in the Hall of Fame voting. But I, but I think if you're ever going to think about invoking it in a positive sense, you'd look at a guy who was considered one of the best players in the game and who really did sort of meet a standard above just staying out yeah. of trouble. And I, I think, you know, Dale Murphy is that guy. And so in my final analysis, I said I wouldn't vote for him. But, man, I would not complain at all if he were elected. Yeah, and I think a lot of people could probably look at it in both of those ways, where you can size things up by the numbers, but there's just a lot I think he does add from the character clause, and utilizing it for something besides disqualifying somebody from the Hall of Fame would yep. be an interesting discussion to have. You know, wrapping up here, and I want to ask, because we're kind of bouncing off the character clause here, the baseball writer's ballot has now shrunk a bit in terms of controversy because some very big names who we actually just saw in the uh, contemporary era ballot, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, I mean, Kurt Schilling, uh, Sammy Sosa also dropped off the ballot. All of those either linked to PEDs or just being divisive characters in general are no longer under consideration for the writers. So uh, what effects do you think this is going to have? And could it, in fact, maybe reinvigorate the Hall of Fame cases for some of the other players who might have felt backlog or quite simply had to take a back seat to all of the hand-wringing and consternation that went with those characters? Well, I think in some ways it's a relief, but we just got Alex Rodriguez on the ballot uh, last year. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, like think when I, I was writing uh, for Baseball Prospectus in 2010 or 2011, it's like, we're going to be dealing with this until 2035. That was before the, the Hall of Fame shortened the uh, eligibility window. It's still going to be a factor through yeah. like 2031. But, uh, you know, we've already seen, you know, some players not linked to PEDs make significant advances over the last few years. Scott Rowland. Todd Helton, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, mm -hmm. top to bottom, that's about 62% to 41%. Gary Sheffield, peripherally linked to Balco, is in that low 40s range as well. All of those guys have benefited as the um, as the ballot has thinned out, even before Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling left. Mm -hmm. um, now we've got a bit of a vacuum up top. It's not clear that Scott Rowland is going to get that last 12% he needs to get over the line. So we know there are going to be PED guys popping on and off of the Hall of Fame ballot. We've been kind of living in this space for the better part of a decade at least. What do you think this means going forward for the other candidates, guys who aren't linked to that kind of thing? I mean, it doesn't seem like we have quite the crowded ballot issue that we were dealing with with so many players and the rule of 10. It just felt like there were a lot of different factors that were working against some players that might not be in place now that you don't have Bonds, Clemens, and the likes on the ballot. Uh, the only... Uh, first-year candidate that has a realistic Hall of Fame case in my eyes is Carlos Beltran, who has Hall of Fame numbers as a center fielder, top 10 in Jaws, mm -hmm. but he is the player who was kind of singled out as central to the Astros' 2017 illegal yeah. sign-stealing scandal, the only player mentioned in Rob Manfred's report. Now, I think it's fair to question uh, the extent to which he's been made to carry the weight mm -hmm. uh, of team-wide involvement. I mean, everybody from you know Marwin Gonzalez and Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, Jose Altuve. And Jose Altuve was said to not want the signs, but all these other guys, like nobody stood up to him enough to stop it. Uh, not even manager A.J. Hinch. Yeah. If you're to believe the reporting, 
I have a hard time squaring that with what we know about Carlos Beltran. I mean, like high baseball IQ guy. You know, he said things that they didn't view it as cheating or whatever. And I think if, from what we know with the reporting, there were other teams that were doing similar. We saw the Red Sox penalized for mm-hmm. it. You know, I know that there were other teams that reporters were exploring but didn't have enough to carry it publicly. There's going to be a large section, I think, of baseball fans that are going to look at Carlos Beltran and only see what happened in Houston. And he is kind of the poster boy for that. And I don't know that that's necessarily fair to your point because there were other members of that team. This was not just Carlos Beltran out there doing it. Otherwise, it would have been a a much more easy-to-handle controversy than it ended up being. But what do you think ultimately becomes of Beltran, whose Hall of Fame credentials were already pretty much cemented by the time he rolled into Houston to close out his career. I don't know really what I'm going to do with Carlos Beltran on my ballot. I, I don't know if this is a capital offense. You know, sign stealing has a, is on a, along a continuum that goes back to the 19th century. Yeah. Um, buzzer systems and things like that. I mean, the 1951 Giants were discovered yep. to have used buzzers. They are pretty much unrepentant, with the exception <laughs> of some empathy towards Ralph Franca, who gave up the shot heard around the world. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, hell yeah, we did it. You know, so it's like, why, you know, the twisting of Carlos Beltran's arm beyond the, you know, the apologies he's already made kind of strikes me as, as a bit much. It's like, you know, confess before burning the witch at the trial. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a danger of going overboard there. I, I'm leaning towards including him on my ballot, especially because I don't think I'm going to have a problem getting with like trying to consider more than 10 guys that might, but at the same time, I understand why people would withhold the honor at least for the first year. I think back to Roberto Alomar not getting enough votes in the first year because of the spitting incident Mm -hmm. on the umpire uh, and then getting a record percentage for a second year candidate. I think went from like 73% to 90% or thereabouts. Um, It's probably not going to be that much for Beltran. I don't see him getting in in year two, but I do think he's going to be in play for a while. I hope he's in play for a while. I don't think, this should be a candidacy-ending decision right. um, or even something that makes it an obstacle that will thwart his election chances. I, you know, look, if A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora can get jobs already, you know, after serving their suspensions and Beltran, Beltran does not deserve to be run out of baseball. He's doing announcing for the Yes Network, but hasn't got another managerial interview. I, I do wonder about this, the differential frontier justice that's being administered here so yeah i don't know it's interesting and there's a lot to chew on i actually wrote about it today for fan graphs my big profile uh new one of this year's series yeah absolutely and make sure you're checking out jay's work over at fan graphs he did candidacy uh write-ups for all of the contemporary era guys and of course so much more beyond that out at the winter meetings i really appreciate all of your time i'd be remiss not to remind people about the cooperstown casebook let people know where they can get that i have mine i think it's essential reading if you enjoy the hall of fame well, thank you. Uh, if you want a signed copy, uh, go to the top of my Twitter feed, J-A-Y underscore J-A-F-F-E, and you'll get a link to uh, the bookstore uh, in Brooklyn where I will go and sign books and personalize them. Great for a holiday gift. I, I go there probably you know on a monthly basis to do, to do some of those. Um, obviously, it's, it's available on Amazon and, and, and other uh, electronic outlets, but you know, do think hard about supporting your local independent bookstore if you're going to do the book. You'd be doing me a solid. I, at this point, the sales aren't enough that I'm going to dent the charts in Amazon. Um, you know, so it's 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 worth thinking about uh, supporting your local retailers and uh, uh, your independent retailers and all that. Jay, as always, it's a great time talking to you, and I look forward to doing it again soon, perhaps in January, when the baseball writers' voting results will come out, and we'll see exactly how big the class of 2023 will be. 
All right. Sounds great, Grant. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Jay Jaffe, senior writer for Fangraphs. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. Well, let's turn the page there from the Hall of Fame and get to what most of you probably tune into From the Diamond for each and every week. And that, of course, is our Braves discussion. I want to welcome Justin Toscano of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution into the show. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Justin C. Toscano. Well, Justin, the winter meetings are such a fun time, and I've always felt like while there is an expectation for fans that the big moves are going to be made, and of course we're seeing big moves made, we're going to talk about those. I feel like if nothing else, and from talking to Alex Antopoulos in the past, the winter meetings are a really great point for conversations to get started and to plant the seed for the moves that can define your winter, even if they don't happen in the four or five days where the whole baseball world's together. Of course, there's always been... And I don't know what it's due to, but there's always been this idea that having everybody under the same roof spurs some action, gets some things going, starts the conversations, lets you know where you're at, kind of sets the market sometimes if other teams are doing moves. So it's really getting going. And I mean, you know, we haven't had one of these things in three years, so Mm -hmm. it's good to have it officially back. Good to have everybody in the same building in the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego. And uh, even if you're not making big moves... The winter meetings are always still a productive time because teams are teams are busy. Even if there's nothing to show for it on Twitter, teams are busy. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite times of year. I was there three years ago in San Diego, the last time that they were in person. Wanted to be there this year. Couldn't work out the logistics for that, but it captivates baseball fans regardless of what your zip code is because there is so much activity typically going on, and if nothing else, there's the possibility of it. But throw possibility out the door. We're seeing the signings happening. It's a very exciting time, and the National League East, Justin, seems to be the place to be. Uh, unless you're Jacob DeGrom. He signed with the Texas Rangers. Maybe that's what set this all off into motion. But how about Justin Verlander to the New York Mets for two years and $86 million? Trey Turner, a $300 million deal. One of three Phillies signings along with Taiwan Walker and now Matt Strom. They talked a few years ago about spending some stupid money. But I don't know if we're going to know exactly how this money has been spent just yet. But the Phillies are very active. The Mets had a DeGrom-sized hole to fill. The Braves haven't gotten there yet, and we'll talk about that. But what do you think about what else is happening around the National League East? Really interesting. Last year, I thought of this division, actually for a couple years, as baseball's gauntlet. I mean, you could look at the NL West now. You could look at the AL East, other divisions. But the NL East could send three teams to October Mm -hmm. again, probably should send three teams to October again if everything continues to progress the way it is. This is going to be a really fun division. Um, and God, it almost makes you a little sad that the new schedule's coming in. I like the new schedule, but it would have been fun to see, you know, Braves Phillies more, Braves Mets more, um, all that stuff. But the division looks really, really, really strong. And I think with the new schedule, we're probably going to see that play out, right? Because the Mets are going to get to play the Tigers, for example. Yep. The Braves are going to get to play the Royals, you know, more teams you don't get to play as much. So the Mets and the Braves. And then the Braves and the Phillies and the Mets and the Phillies aren't going to have to beat up on each other all summer. Uh, and it, it'll really be interesting to see how those teams kind of pace throughout the year. But this is a really, really good division. You've got star power in the Phillies. Uh, you've got a team in the Mets that still wants to contend, yep. that knows they have to spend to do it. And then you've got the Braves, who are really, really well set up now and in the future, but still with, you know, 
an impending hole potentially. Yeah, and let's talk about that because it's the name that everybody's wondering because, you know, whether you're pro, like, hey, they got to bring Dansby Swanson back at all costs or you're kind of maybe undecided on it, hoping he comes back, or you're one of those fans that says, hey, maybe they can turn the page, find somebody else somewhere else, sign somebody else. I don't know what Trey Turner's contract really means to Dansby Swanson other than probably nothing bad. But we don't know how this is going to play out just yet. But you've been there at the winter meetings. You've gotten to talk to Brian Snitker. You've obviously talked to Alex Antopoulos as well. Uh, what's your read on the situation? I know this is a big week for Dansby. I believe he's getting married. So he's got some other things on his mind. But I'm sure he'd like to be figuring out where he's going to be playing baseball for the next few years. Yeah, of course. Well, and he's getting married this weekend. Look, this situation has always been about price. Um, I was on your show a couple months ago or mm-hmm. a month ago now. Jeez, time's running together. But yeah. The sides exchange offers in the second half of the season, and they were apart. Let's just say that. And I think, you know, I thought there was a chance maybe to kind of for each side to compromise and kind of split the baby a little bit. It didn't happen. And then Dansby Swanson goes on and, you know, he finishes out that great offensive season, has the clutch stats, wins the gold glove, and his price conceivably goes up. Um, And there are a lot of teams looking for shortstops. It's a premium position. And, oh, by the way, he's got the, you know, the sell of he's a great leader. He has that it factor. For years we've talked about that with him, even when he hadn't developed into what he is today. Now, my read on the situation is this. Look, I think you're right about Turner not pacing the market for Dansby. I think that's going to be more Bogarts that does that because Correa should earn, you know, something around what Turner would did. And, uh I think Bogarts is going to be closest to Dansby. He'll probably get more than Dansby, uh, but whatever that market is, if it's a little higher, you know, if we look at that, if we look at that Bogarts number when he signs, you know, assuming he signs before Dansby, and we're like, wow, then Dansby could get even more than maybe we would project. But if you know, and I just think the Braves have been so good because Alex Anthopoulos has kind of sometimes that firm line of knowing what he's going to be comfortable with and what he wouldn't be comfortable with and, you know, knowing what's going to make his team the best. Is it starting Vaughn Grissom and using the resources that he would have used on Dansby elsewhere? Is it starting Grissom and he has a great first half and extending him? Is it, you know, trading for Willie Adamas or somebody else if they're available? I think he makes those decisions on the mark, you know, just those really – nitpicky you know decisions with so many factors as well as anybody and look like I think everybody felt like Freddie Freeman was gonna come back yeah I don't really I don't really know I think everybody knows that it makes sense for the Braves and Dansby to reunite and continue this thing but I honestly don't know that people think you know that people are that optimistic uh about Dansby I think everybody kind of is reading the tea leaves a little bit in terms of them not having come to an agreement. It doesn't seem like a ton of progress has been made, even if Dansby and Alex Anthopoulos spoke recently. And look, I mean, if the Braves aren't going to be willing to meet his price, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but it's just if you're Dansby and you just had a career year, why would you, you come down if there's going to be another team willing to offer you more money? Teams need shortstop help. And I just think, you know, I get asked all the time if this is the same as a Freeman situation. Even from afar, I felt Freddie was going to come back the entire time. I'm just not so sure with Dansby because there hasn't really been much progress. And I just think, you know, we've heard so much about other options, whether it be internally or or otherwise, that it gets you thinking. 
Yeah, it really does. I'm really interested to see, obviously, how it plays out with all of these major shortstops. One's off the board in Turner. He got more years than I thought he'd get. That could also bode well for Dansby Swanson. All he has to do is get a couple of interested clubs in there, assuming that the Braves are one of the teams that wants him back. If there's two, three, four teams vying for him, it might very well go from, hey, well, the Braves are comfortable with a five-year deal. Dansby wants a six-year deal. Well, this club over here is offered seven or eight years. Now, all of a sudden, you've got yourself a real serious derby, and that's what happens when you get to free agency, and that's something that I talked to Alex Anthopoulos about after the Spencer Strider extension. This is the difference between extending a player while he's early in his career and somebody getting to and reaching free agency the way that Swanson has, and I think you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of people, myself included, thought, hey, Freddie Freeman in Atlanta, they're going to get it worked out. It did not work out. Alex Anthopoulos, the club, clearly had an idea of what they wanted the deal to look like. It wasn't going to come together. They made the proactive strike of getting Matt Olson and extending him before Freddie Freeman even signed. I don't think you could even rule that out in this scenario either, could you, Justin? I mean, you don't have to wait for all the free agents to sign. You don't have to wait for Dansby to sign elsewhere. And Alex Anthopoulos has never struck me as somebody who's going to just sit back and let the market do whatever it does and be caught without a dance partner. That is exactly my read on the situation is he's as good as anybody about knowing where he stands on things, where things stand um, with other free agents, where other teams stand and kind of what could play out. And look, if you're looking at Dansby Swanson, there aren't a ton of backup plans, right? Like what team, you know, is going to trade its great young shortstop. And so what I mean by that is there might only be a, couple of those guys available that they would want to trade for that they could say unequivocally okay this guy's better than Vaughn Grissom yeah um and so I mean he's not gonna get caught without a backup plan it happened with Freddie Freeman and the Matt Olson trade um and look like the Braves he, Alex Anthopoulos said it here just that they're never gonna react to a move they're paying yeah. attention to what everybody's doing but they're not gonna react they're gonna stay within their parameters uh, and they're really gonna do what's best for them and that's kind of what's got them here. And I understand that if, if you're a Braves fan and you see Trey Turner to the Phillies, mm-hmm. Justin Verlander to the Mets, mm-hmm. the Phillies are signing Taiwan Walker, everybody else going everywhere. You see Mitch Haniger, you see the Giants loading up. Yep. You wanna you wanna get in the action. I get that as a fan. Like you want it, you want something to be excited about, but you also have to remember how the Braves built this team. They didn't build it on forty, you know, million dollar AAVs or thirty million dollar AAVs or, you know, a bunch of eight-year contracts for current free agents, they've really decided to invest in the guys, you know, that have been on the roster and young players and Mm -hmm. extensions. And they're going to stick within their parameters and look like Dansby Swanson means a ton to the Braves. He means a ton to his teammates. And the front office knows that. But they're not going to do something that's out of their comfort zone, you know, for anybody. They They just haven't. And Alex Anthopoulos said it best when he said, you just get attached. You know, the front office gets attached, fans get attached, and it's normal. But at the end of the day, he, you know, he knows this and said it. He's got a job to do, and that's to make the best decision for the organization now and in the future. And, hey, if, you know, Dansby Swanson's a little out of your price range, do you do it? I mean, or do you go for kind of the sustainability aspect of it? You do what got you here. And I just mm-hmm. think, to me, it it seems like the Braves have kind of this – hard and fast ridge you know there's there's a breaking point with everything and i i just don't see them going over the breaking point in this situation if it comes to that uh and that's why 
I, you know, I thought they would get something done toward the end of the season and it didn't happen. And now, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm probably the least optimistic I've been to this point. Yeah, and, and every day that goes by and you think about where we were a year ago, well, there was a lockout a year ago, but the final result of the Freddie Freeman saga that played out with him being in another uniform, that's a realistic possibility right now. No two ways about it. The one thing that Dansby did say coming off of the Freddie Freeman, uh, what shall we say, saga, was that, hey, I'm going to be in contact with my representation and they're going to know I'm going to steer the ship and I'm the captain of that and where I want to play, I'm going to try to work out that deal. If that place is interested in having me, I'm going to make that decision. And that, I think, is at least a proactive way of us avoiding what was a very odd string of events when Freddie Freeman's negotiations, as it were, were just kind of laid bare for everybody to kind of pick the bones of in the aftermath of him ending up with the Dodgers. But that's an old story from last year. We're going to throw that out to the side for now because there's no change in that. But the questions abound with Dansby Swanson and for the Atlanta Braves. You got a chance to talk to Brian Snitker on Tuesday out in San Diego. I know that Snit would love to have Dansby Swanson back in the fold, but I also know that you guys talked to him about Vaughn Grissom and what that possibility means. And I think that Brian Snitker being the old school soul that he is kind of wants to, you know, it's great to talk about a player, talk up a player about the possibility of him doing something for the club the next year, even a guy that we might even be a little bit familiar with, but it sounds like Brian Snitker would like to see Vaughn Grissom go out there and prove it before he's ready to hand the keys to shortstop over to anybody. Look, and Vaughn Grissom was a guy that Braves never expected to be up in 2022. Right. Um, and so Brian Snitker was honest and he said, look, like I, to be honest, I don't even remember seeing this guy at shortstop when, these guys would cat be catting for us, you know, around spring training and in games. And he goes, I don't, I just don't even remember. And he said to me, it's, it's something where I'm going to have to analyze it with my own eyes and make a determination. So he really stopped short of, of, you know, professing, you know, faith in Grissom. They've got faith in Grissom. He has talked up Grissom a ton of times, you know, throughout this, but the starting shortstop, you know, job, the keys to the Lexus, for example, for a team that's, one of the best in baseball. That's a big, big job. Uh, and I really, you know, respected Brian Snicker for just being honest about that yeah. and saying, look, like, I don't remember him when he played shortstop. You know, it, it can't hurt to work with Wash, is what he said. Of course, it's going to help, but I just, I don't know. I'm going to have to get my own eyes on him. Um, and it really does sound like, you know, that was a guy, of course, who they didn't know if he would stay on you know shortstop if he you know eventually they, they knew drafting him that eventually he might have to move off the position now ron washington believes he can be a good you know everyday shortstop defensively ron washington is the infield guru of all infield gurus Correct. in this sport but ryan snicker like you said old school guy you know he's he's not gonna just needlessly talk up somebody sometime you know he's gonna you know, I think Von Grissom will have to prove it if it comes to that. And I don't think he's going to be completely handed the keys. Look, I think if they go internal and they don't bring anybody else, and I think it's going to be a situation where you might see Orlando Arcia, you know, starts in games or Von Grissom might, you know, he's, he's going to have to prove it. They're not just going to give it to him super easily. But on the other hand, I do think, you know, you have to be careful with a lot of things being said for leverage. But I do think that things that have been said publicly and privately – the Braves really believe in Vaughn Grissom and they really like him. Yeah, and there is a lot to like about this player, but as you brought up, uh, nobody really expected him to be playing at the big league level in 2022, and yet he came up and gave the Braves a very important jolt for a few weeks that they needed and a lift at second base when they thought they were going to lose Orlando Arcia for the remainder of the season, having already played without Ozzy Albies for so long. 
And Grissom's a guy who basically played out of position to get himself to the big leagues and be able to give the Braves that little bit of lift. But uh, putting all that aside, and you know, Brian Snitker has been very pragmatic, I think, about the way that he runs his club and about the belief that he has in his players, but also being realistic in, in his expectations of each and every one of these guys and, and managing a clubhouse and creating an atmosphere that it keeps that very even keel. That's a real... That's a Braves thing. That's something that they take a lot of pride in. But uh, for fans who are looking around and maybe don't feel like being as pragmatic at the moment and see a lot of spending going on in a lot of different uh, places, let me ask you this, because I know that the collective bargaining tax thresholds, the luxury tax, as it were, something we're talking an awful lot about. Alex Anthopoulos has been pretty forthright, I I think, thus far, in that we're looking at all the deals. If it makes sense, we're going to do it. And you've got team executives who have said to you, to me, to other people, hey, we're eyeing that top five payroll. That's a goal of ours. Doesn't mean it happens overnight, but when you put those two things together, a team that's willing to spend more and continue to add to this payroll and a GM who's looking for the right deal, I do think that there's a lot of the winter left for something big to happen for the Atlanta Braves that could uh, prevent, uh, or excuse me, could uh, propel them further as far as uh, top teams, payrolls, and all of Major League Baseball, depending on how things fall. Of course, yeah, I think so. And I don't think that's just spin from them. I think they've been looking to do the right deal. Look, like Trey Turner's deal, that's not something the Braves have done. Uh, Taiwan Walker's deal, that's not something the Braves are ever going to do. They don't need rotation help to the tune of $72 million. No. Um, other deals like that, Zach Eflin, three for 40, that's not – he might be as good as a, of a fist starter or bullpen option as the Braves already have. Uh, so a lot of these deals, Jacob DeGrom, they had interest in Jacob DeGrom, but that was never a deal that they were going to do. Justin Verlander, that was a hefty price as well. Like I get at some point you've got to spend. At some point it's it really is about the team that goes overboard and, you know, how much do you want this guy? Okay, go overboard. And, and it, so at some point it is, it is about the team that does that. But the Braves have never been that type of team. They're not going to go out of their comfort zone. Um, they're very conservative with those deals. They know the risk in them, and they've chosen to build this thing from within. And look, I still think that one thing people aren't thinking about enough is like, I think it's maybe realistic that the biggest move that's made this winter is a trade. Uh, we think of the farm system being depleted because of last season, but I also think it's worth noting that you know we cover a team that traditionally doesn't hype its prospects up to the media as others do. Uh, And so sometimes that stuff is not reflected in rankings, but I think they've got some guys in that farm system. Uh, They've got some leeway to do it. Nobody's ever told them that they don't have the players to do so. Uh, Would they trade Grissom? Would they trade Contreras? I don't think so. But if you're talking just prospects or something like that, I think the biggest, you know, move they could have might be, a trade. It doesn't even have to be a signing, but there's a lot of the winner to get this stuff done. Um, and the movers and shakers are already going, you know, in the Braves front office now here at the winter meetings. Um, but I just think, you know, they're busy, they're working just because there's nothing to show yet, you know, in a press release doesn't mean that nothing's going on there. Yeah, and we know that the Braves like to break a lot of their own news. In fact, a very high percentage of it. I've never seen anything quite like it, but it is what it is, and it's a a ship that's been sailing on pretty good waters for the Braves for quite some time. Justin, appreciate all your time and uh, joining me all the way from San Diego where the baseball winter meetings are going on. I don't want to get out of here without allowing you to plug, obviously, where you can find your great work at AJC.com for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but you also have a nice little podcast. Uh, let the folks know about that and where they can find it and how they can follow you. 
Yep, you can follow me at Justin C. Toscano on Twitter, um, and AJC.com and the Braves Report podcast out every Monday uh, during the season and, uh, you know, when we do the talking during the off season. So, yeah, man, it's, it's always good to come on with you, and uh, thanks for having me. Well, things are moving fast and furious at the winter meetings. We've sat around talking baseball for so long that another free agent's off the board, and this one is one we should know pretty well. Jeff Passan of ESPN reporting on Wednesday morning that Kenley Jansen has signed a two-year, $32 million deal with the Boston Red Sox. So the Braves' closer for last year, who was making $16 million for Atlanta in 2022, has parlayed that into a two-year deal. He'll stay on the East Coast again, but head to the American League for the first time in his career. And if you kind of wonder what that means, I think we already knew the Braves went out and got Rysel Iglesias at the trade deadline. So installing him as the team's closer seems to be the next logical step. And Atlanta will just have to look for other bullpen reinforcements elsewhere as there will be no reunion with Kinley Jansen, which I think was something both sides were open to, but a multi-year deal. I don't think the Braves were really going to get into that kind of derby for Kinley Jansen. Well, that'll bring us to the end of this episode of From the Diamond. I hope you enjoyed it. I tried to pack a lot of it in as the winter meetings have been fast and furious with free agent signings. We had the Hall of Fame announcement, so congratulations to Fred McGriff. We're still crossing our fingers and waiting for Dale Murphy, and hopefully his day will come as well. If you like what you heard on the show, I hope you'll subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcast from. Those help out the show immensely. As always, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can follow Corey McCartney at Corey J. McCartney. You can follow the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end on Twitter. You can also like us on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond and you'll find me there. Once again, I appreciate my guest, Jay Jaffe of Fangraphs, and of course, Justin Toscano of the AJC for making time for us this week. And I look forward to talking to you again soon, right here on From the Diamond. Until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>